thank you to, for, for you uh, joining us this morning as we turn again to God's word. And as Elaine has read, we're going to be basing ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 2 and the first 12 verses. So please feel free to look that up either in your own Bible on your device or on the, the red chair Bibles that are around you. And, and as you look that up, um, I wonder if I could ask you a question. Uh, who is the one person in the world you would love to meet? And what would you do to meet them? I wonder who that would be. I remember being at a football match at Old Trafford many years ago with my cousin. And we waited for ages at the back of the stadium after the game to see the players come out and get into their fancy cars and drive off. And we waited for ages and we maybe caught a glimpse of them for a couple of seconds, but it felt worth it. Got a couple of photos, a few autographs. It helps when you've got a small child with you and you, you, know, you, you usher your way to the front of the barricade. Uh, but it felt worth it because of who we were meeting. Or maybe even as you think recently of all the coronation celebrations and the people who queued and waited and camped out to get a glimpse of the king and queen as they drove past. Maybe you found yourself arriving very early for a concert or a performance just so that you make sure you get right to the front, right at the barrier. Maybe even that you get a, a glimpse of the performer on stage. Might, might even catch their eye for a second because you're so close. People, people can take extreme measures to meet someone that they think is worthy of that effort, don't they? And the, the account that we read in Mark 2 shows exactly that. We see people taking extreme measures to get to Jesus. Crowds have gathered to see this man, Jesus. We find him teaching in Capernaum, and the place where he is is packed out. We're told there's not even room outside or around the doorway. But there, are a group, there, are, there is a group of men desperate to see Jesus, and they take extreme measures to get to him. And that scenario that then unfolds, provides the context for Jesus to once again use his words to demonstrate his authority. And this time what we see as we hear another question being asked of Jesus and we see his response, we see that Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sin. That's what this encounter will show us. We see Jesus say those exact words. And so I want to reread that encounter this morning and discover, and this might be the first time that you hear this and celebrate the wonder of Jesus having authority to forgive sin. This might be the thousandth time that you have heard this great news, but this is the greatest news that we can ever hear. This is the gospel in which we stand, as we've just been singing. And so let's celebrate it this morning as we read again from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, sorry, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat and the man lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, "Son, your sins are forgiven." Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, 
And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. God, I pray that as we look at your word, you would speak. Uh, by your word, through your spirit, may you speak to our hearts. Encourage us, challenge us, draw us on and feed us, we pray. And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen. What an, what an incredible scene, isn't it? Uh, and perhaps you picked up on that question that we're going to examine this morning as we continue this question mark series where we're, we're hoping to see specific questions that are asked to Jesus or by Jesus that help to demonstrate his authority. And the question today comes from the teachers of the law in verse 7. But it's interesting because the question actually isn't asked out loud. It's a question they think in their heads, yet Jesus knows the question. And by him answering the question and then God giving, them, giving us this account in his words, we get to enjoy this encounter. And so here's the question in verse 7. The Pharisees ask and the teachers of the law ask, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And that question is, of course, prompted by Jesus in verse 5, saying, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, ironically, the, the, the fascinating internal rantings of the scribes here actually show us the answer to their question at the same time. If we reread verses 6 to 7, I think we see this. Now, some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. God alone can forgive sins. But the way in which these scribes go so disastrously wrong is to not see who was standing before them. They just saw this ordinary man. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Because we know that only God can forgive sins. So what right does this guy have to say such things? But that's the very point, isn't it? And that's the point that Jesus makes clear to them. He says in verse 10, I want you to know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. And then breaks off from his sentence. I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So get up, take your mat and walk. Because by doing that outward physical miracle, Jesus is showing that he had, an, he had a greater authority to do the internal spiritual transformation. Jesus is the son of man and he proves it by healing the man's paralysis right in front of their eyes. And I even love the, the, the repetition. Jesus says, which is easier to say, get up, take your mat and walk. So he said to the man, get up, take your mat and walk. And then in verse 12, the man gets up, takes his man, mat and walks. The point is clear, isn't it? Healing paralysis seemed very easy for Jesus because he is supreme authority. And so as he's able to claim Son, your sins are forgiven in verse 5. He can do that because he is the Son of Man who has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so there, there are many lessons that we could take from this encounter in, in chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel. And we will come back to this at some stage, I hope. Um, but what I would love to do this morning is to focus primarily on Jesus. As we're thinking about him having the authority to forgive sin, well, well what does that mean? And what does this passage show us? Indeed, what can we see from all of Scripture? And, and this reality of Jesus being the one who has authority to take away sin, it's, it's the central promise of the Christian gospel. If Jesus doesn't have authority to take away sin, th then what was the cross about? If he doesn't have authority to take away sin, why must we trust him? And I know that many of us in this room know this truth personally, but this is never a message that we should grow weary of. 
Because this is a message that we need to keep on hearing. We need to hear it for the first time. Yes, absolutely. But we need to keep on hearing. Because although many of us know the forgiveness that Jesus offers, we know that in ourselves. We also know that we live in a world where we are, no, we are not sinless. We might have had our sins forgiven, but we, we are not sinless yet. And also we know, many of us know that the crippling doubt of questioning whether Jesus really has forgiven us our sin. I mean, my, my sin is terrible. How, how can he, maybe, maybe, I, maybe I need to live a certain way to make sure that Jesus forgives my sin. Or <clears throat> he, can't, he can't forgive that bit, so I'll not bring that to him. And so we, we live with this doubt and fear rather than the freedom that Jesus comes to give because he has authority to forgive. So when Jesus says, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven, there's no question left there. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions. So brother and sister in the Lord, if you are forgiven, you are forgiven. Full stop. Because he has authority to do so. And so as we lean into this a little bit more this morning, I, I invite us to, to grasp the reality and the immensity of the goodness of this news. Uh, and to guide us through our time, we're going to recognize at least three things uh, about Jesus from this passage. So because Jesus has authority to forgive sin, that means that Jesus meets our greatest need, as we've just been singing. Because he has authority to forgive sin, it means Jesus provides our perfect substitute. Because he has authority to forgive sin, it means Jesus deserves our utmost praise. We'll spend most of our time in that first point um, as we think about how Jesus meets our greatest needs. So let's begin there. Um, as we said right at the beginning, uh, Mark 2 shows this, this encounter of these men trying to desperately get the paralyzed man to Jesus. Clearly, they've heard the news that Jesus has come home to Capernaum, which is where Jesus had now set up home. Uh, he had been traveling around Galilee and healing many people in the second half of chapter 1, healing many people around Galilee and then comes back. And verses 2 to 4 in chapter 2 show that the crowds had gathered and Jesus was preaching the word to them. He's teaching in this place. But the crowds are so big that the guys who brought the paralyzed man couldn't even get close. So they get inventive and head up the external stairway of, of Palestinian homes. And they, they put a hole, make a hole, dig a hole in the flat roof of the building. And so those roofs are, generally speaking, made of bricks or, or sorry, sticks or clay all mixed together. Or sometimes there were uh, like mud slates, like tiles that were broken or that were set in place. And so that's why Luke, in his account in chapter 5, says about the breaking through the tiles of the roof. Whatever way, they dig a hole through the roof, lower the man still on his mat, right to be in front of Jesus. It's a remarkable scene. And, and knowing that, that Jesus had been healing many people up to this point, surely these men have brought the paralyzed man to Jesus, expecting or, or at the very least hoping that Jesus would meet his very obvious physical need. This man is paralyzed. He's on a mat. They lower him before him. And what do they hope to happen? We're not told explicitly. But I wonder, as we read this, what, what would you hope to happen? And then verse 5 shows Jesus' response as he sees their faith. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if, if you'd been in that space, 
crushed in to hear this great man preach and teach, this man who you'd heard do all of the, the healings of people all over Galilee. I wonder if you would have been in any way underwhelmed by those words. We're not told how anyone other than the scribes react, but, but I wonder how we would have said what we would have said, what we would have done. Even as we read it today, do we find it strange that this is the first thing that Jesus addresses? That this is the need that he meets right at the beginning? He's got a very obvious need. Jesus, why are you talking about his sin? Well, well, this shows us the key point that we cannot miss. Forgiveness from sin is our greatest need. Forgiveness from sin is our greatest need. And if we don't fully grasp the consequences of our sin, then I'm not sure we'll fully appreciate Jesus' forgiveness from it. If we don't fully grasp the consequences of our sin and what it will lead to, then, then there's a risk that we don't fully appreciate Jesus' rescue of us from those things. See, it, it, it may be uncomfortable to talk about. It may even be un, unacceptable to talk about in some places. But the Bible is clear that sin is not just an issue that we face. It is the issue of our lives. We know from Scripture, and this is just a selection of New Testament verses, we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is something we all are wrapped up in. We know in Romans 5 that just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Sin is a universal issue that all of us deal with. And Romans 6 goes on to say, the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. This is just a very small section, a selection of what the Bible teaches us about sin, but we can begin to see the seriousness of it, the consequences of it, the devastating consequences of it. We read there of death, of wrath, of alienation from a holy God. See, sin is rebellion against God. It is an offense to him. It's not just something he, fly, he finds displeasing. God, the holy God, finds sin abhorrent. And therefore, in his justice, his good and righteous justice, he punishes sin. It must be punished. And we know from Scripture that, that the judgment of sin takes place in the eternal punishment of hell. And the Bible describes hell in a number of ways. The eternal fire in Matthew 18. Eternal punishment in Matthew 25. Everlasting destruction in Second Thessalonians 1. The darkest blackness in Jude, the lake of burning sulfur in Revelation 20. Hell is a dreadful place. The, the, the language that, that the Bible uses is, is distressing. But the word, we, we, we can't even put words to what that place must be like. But we need to get a biblical understanding of hell and the consequences of our sin, which will lead us there if it goes unchecked. Because once we see that, then we begin to understand that being forgiven from there is our greatest need. See, Jesus knew that, of course he knew that. 
He knows it for me. He knows it for you. And he knew it for the paralyzed man in Mark 2. He knows that this man's biggest problem is sin. And therefore, offering himself and offering forgiveness from that sin was the greatest thing that Jesus could do for this man. You see, sin and its consequences are dreadful. But good news comes in Jesus Christ. See, the verses that we looked at earlier regarding sin only give part of the picture. And so what I want to do is fill in the rest of the verses which show us Jesus as the one who provides for and meets our greatest need. So look at these verses again with me. And if you want, I can send you these slides after so that you have a record of them or just jot down the references. But Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Good news. Romans 5. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. And then later in verse 15 we read, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Grace. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 said, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins like the rest of we were by nature deserving of wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. In Colossians 1, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. See the good news of Jesus Christ, how he meets our greatest need. And, and the transformation that takes place here is, is not just remarkable. Words can't describe what goes on here, that we move from falling short to being justified in Romans 3. Sin to grace in Romans 5. Death to life. Wrath to mercy. Alienation to reconciliation. This is the greatest news because Jesus meets our greatest need. Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sin. And this is good news. This is not just good. This is the good news that the world and we need to hear. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And that means that he is able to meet our greatest need. But, but how does he do that? How is he able to forgive? Well, we move on now to see how Jesus provides our perfect substitute. Yes, he meets our greatest need. And how does he do that? He does that by the cross where we see him in our place. You see, we see this reality in the verses that we've just flicked through, but this is another reality that we can't overstate. See, sin is our greatest need. and is my greatest need. And to meet that need, Jesus. Our, our human logic will assume that sin is my greatest need, so I have to do something. Sin is my greatest need. I have offended God, therefore I have to make it up to him. Sin is my greatest need, so I've got to work my way through it. No. God looks at our sin and sends Jesus. He looks at our sin and sends his son. This is remarkable good news. 
And we, we need Jesus to solve our problem of sin because we're powerless to do it ourselves. It would be like if someone spills a lovely cup of black coffee all over your brand new white tablecloth and you grab the filthiest, dirtiest rag from the back of the garage and try to clean it up. It's never going to work because the rag is the problem. There's a stain, yes, but to clean it, you can't use something filthy. It's only going to make it worse. We are like the filthy rag. We can't make ourselves clean because we in and of ourselves are sinners. And therefore we need the cleansing hand of one who is pure, one who is good, one who is holy. We need God himself. It's what the teachers of the law say, isn't it? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's the question they ask and they are right. Who can forgive sins? God alone. I can't. I can't forgive mine. I can't forgive those, the sins of others. I can, I can barely sort my own day out, let alone forgive sin. God alone can forgive sin. And so as Jesus hears and has the insight to understand the, the teachers of the law asking this question, he answers it by saying, yes, God alone can forgive sins and I am he. See, we've mentioned this before in this series, but the truth of Jesus being fully divine and fully human is complex. It's difficult to get our finite human minds around, of course, yes, but it is a biblical truth that Jesus was God in human form. And and he shows that even by the the term he uses for himself here, which is the, the name he uses for himself most commonly through Mark's gospel, the son of man. In verse 10, he says, I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth. And it's a reference back to Daniel 7. Essentially, he's answering the Pharisees, or sorry, the, the scribes, the teachers of the law by saying, yes, you are right. God alone can forgive sins. And I am him. I am him. The son of man is here. And I want you to know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So let me demonstrate it. Jesus is God in human form. But, but, but what does that mean? How, how, how is he able to forgive sins? And what's this got to do with being a substitute? Well, if we stick with, Math, with Mark's gospel, one of the verses which shows this, and there's plenty more, but one of the verses that shows how Jesus is able to forgive is Mark 10, 45. When Jesus very clearly says, for the son of man, again, talking of himself, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His life for a ransom for many. See, Jesus explains that he came to serve and the ultimate demonstration of that service was to give himself as a ransom for many. And doesn't that language of ransom speak to us of a substitute, something in the place of something else? And we talk about this regularly, especially when we gather around the table and we rightfully should, but we marvel once again at the reality of Jesus Christ, holy, divine Jesus Christ standing in our place giving his life as a ransom for many, being our perfect substitute. See, what we talked about earlier about sin and and the, the righteous, just punishment of sin must still take place. And as we read the gospel account, we see Jesus standing in our place, taking that punishment upon himself, receiving the wrath that was due for me. He bears the full weight of it as he dies in the cross of Calvary. But it was for my sin. 
and yours, not his own. He didn't have any. And so we see this so clearly, don't we, in Isaiah 53. And just a selection of verses show this. Surely he, that is God's suffering servant, that we understand, of course, now to be Jesus, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. See, Jesus is our perfect substitute. And we see it in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 5.21, a verse that we reference frequently as we gather around the table, that God made him, Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us. Christ, the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. And so he provides all that is needed for the penalty of sin to be fully paid. God's wrath satisfied in his own son. And why? Again, how does this still bring forgiveness? Well, the rest of 2 Corinthians 5.21 goes on to show that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, through faith in Jesus Christ and through his complete, full and final sacrifice in our place, we can know forgiveness. We can know reconciliation. And the way that we can know that is because our sins are gone, because Christ has authority to forgive. Christ has taken our sins away. The penalty has been fully paid for. It's not like they've been covered over for a while and they'll resurface again. No, he has fully paid for them. They have been wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, as we sang and said earlier from Psalm 103. And so for those who come to Christ in repentance and faith, turn from the life of sin and cling to him as their only source of salvation and hope, then he grants righteousness, his righteousness in place of my sinfulness. He is our perfect substitute. And he stands as our substitute because he is the one who has authority to forgive sin. And this is great news. Finally, and very briefly, Jesus has authority to forgive sins, meaning that Jesus, therefore, deserves our utmost praise. Doesn't he? He deserves our utmost praise. The, the scene ends here in Mark 2 with the people who had seen this man getting up taking his mat and walking out in full view of them all. And then this amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Of course they haven't. This paralyzed man just got up, took his mat and walked home. They were amazed. Of course they were. They'd seen something incredible. And, and of course, there, there's much we could dig into that, that miracle in and of itself, which would be valuable to do so. But for this morning, we need to recognize that that outward physical miracle was used by Jesus as proof for the inner spiritual one that had already taken place. The outward physical miracle was used by proof for the inner spiritual one. And so as much as the people here are amazed at what they had seen, we must grow in our wonder and awe at the inner miracle that Christ works, Christ works in all who come to him in faith. Because the inner miracle that he works in us to forgive us, forgive our sins, as we've seen, that's our greatest need. 
And so we might be amazed at the paralyzed man, rightly so, standing and walking out. That's incredible. But how much more should we be amazed at the greater need that Jesus met in him and therefore meets in us? The eternal salvation that he offers, not just a temporary ability to walk home, which is, of course, remarkable. How much more? And so because of everything we've seen this morning, the reality of our deep need for forgiveness, also the, the second reality that Jesus therefore stands in our place and meets our greatest need as our substitute, how else can we respond but with praise? Isaiah 61 verse 10 reads, I greatly delight in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he, hath clo- he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. Those in Christ can say those words with all truth. I know that our hearts would know the reality of this delight, this rejoicing, and therefore that our lives would be marked by gratitude and awe and wonder at the God who saves, the God who robes us with his righteousness. This is the good news of the Christian gospel. And many of us know it here. And yes, there are lots of things that seem to to restrict our understanding of it and, and even our, I mean this in the fullest possible sense, our enjoyment of the gospel. There, there's internal doubts and fears. There's a wondering over, could God really save me? And has he fully saved me forever? All of these doubts and fears. And then there's the world that we live in, which bombards us with temptations and trials. And so we, we maybe question. We certainly don't live in the freedom that we see the scripture bringing that we are no longer condemned, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he has gone before us to secure a place for us, that our life in him is full and free from sin. We are no longer mastered by sin. We have a better master, Jesus Christ, who has secured everything we need to be rescued from sin and its consequences. Yes, life might still be dreadful, folks. Life might be terrible. But we are saved. And I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And so Jesus, the one who has authority to forgive sin, the one who meets our greatest need, the one who provides a perfect substitute, the one who therefore deserves our utmost praise. This is Jesus. He is our king. He is our Lord. And can I plead with you, if you you don't know him yet, come to him this morning. Lay your heart before him. Surrender and confess your sin to him. Look at what he's done for you. See his arms stretched out, welcoming you home. Forgiven, free. And then go from this place to live a life to glorify him. And for those of us who do know him as our Lord and Savior, Oh, would we take those words of Isaiah 61 on our hearts and lips? That we would delight greatly in the Lord, that we would rejoice in our God because he's clothed us in garments of salvation and he has arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. And so would we praise him as he so rightly deserves. Shall we sing of this great God, this wonderful savior? We're gonna sing his mercy is more. And the words that we'll sing will say, Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. Father, we thank you.
for your wondrous, joyful, mind-blowing salvation. Father, your grace, which, which is far beyond our comprehension, because why, Lord, would you save me? Yet in your grace and by your mercy you have chosen to. And Father, we are so grateful. What else can we say but thank you and praise you and take our lives. Have your way. Lord, we, we want to be um, we want to be good news people because your word commands us to be so. We want to rightfully recognize the consequences of sin and our eternal destiny if we don't come to you in repentance and faith. But Father, when we recognize that, then how brightly your salvation shines as the greatest news. And so would you, would you implant it in our hearts, I pray, that we would know that to be our experience of you and our reality now standing before you as forgiven. And Lord, would you compel us with an urgency to go and share this message with those who don't know you yet. And may our hearts and our lives and our words reflect all of this goodness, Father. You do indeed deserve the utmost praise because of the salvation that you have secured for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It is in his name, through his name, and for his glory that we pray. Amen.